Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Fruit Loops episode 91. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. No, that's right. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for some different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops Fruit Loops patron. Jeez Louise. My tongue's a little rusty. Anyway. Fruit Loops. <laughs> Fruit Loops, yeah. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about William Balfour, a black man from Chicago who, who murdered three members of his own family, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. a child. Mm-hmm. And the case has a connection with a famous American idol. Mm-hmm. And this case was suggested by True Dark Angel Shy on Twitter. 
Mm, love you, boo. Um, she is uh, very active on uh, oh, cool. Twitter and very engages cool. and, and is always sending us um, really cool case ideas. So our case list is growing. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, before we get into it, how you doing? We've been away a while. Tell me about it. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, feeling more rested and re- ready to tackle the podcast again. All right. Um, yeah. I actually uh, this week started uh, like missing it. <laughs> Me too. Me too. But I'm yeah. going to be honest with you. When you saw me the other day and you were like, I just don't think we're going to be ready to record tonight. I was like, whoo, Lord oh, have thank mercy. God. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. yeah. I think I needed that extra week. Me too. Uh, yeah. We were going to start last week, but we just weren't ready yet. So mm-mm, mm-mm. now you want us all rested and ready, don't you? That's right. <laughs> Look at that. Here we go. Yeah. So it was great to see my daughter, uh, her husband and my grandson. They're in North cool. Dakota. And it's it's a whole different world over there <laughs> a whole new where world. she lives. Yeah. They're they're doing good COVID wise. Um, so it's it's different. Like Arizona, it's, you know. Everybody's masked up and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they don't have very many cases where my daughter lives. So a lot of them don't wear masks. The Walmart in their town mandates masks because all the Walmarts do now. But mm. a lot of people don't wear them anyway. And the employees mm. don't do anything about it. Um, and I think they're they're probably afraid to ask them to wear masks. Um, a lot of the folks are oil field workers and they're kind of rough. So I'm sure they don't feel safe oh. asking them to wear masks. And actually the CDC came out uh, this week saying that employees should not make uh, or tell people that they have to wear masks. They should ask them to wear a mask um, or offer them a mask. But if they refuse, then they should not argue with them because of all the violence that's been happening. Good point. Thanks, CDC, for coming through (laughs) with some useful information. (laughs) So also uh, in North Dakota, there were all these uh, pop-up Trump stores. Wow. Really weird. (laughs) We saw them too in Montana and Idaho. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Like the Trump stuff, like flags and stickers. And Mm -hmm. yeah, really weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How was your trip? Um, Well, it was interesting. We got back, we went to Montana and Idaho and Washington. We didn't stay in Idaho. In fact, we drove through Idaho and there were like so dozens of Confederate flags, like oh wow, on people's trucks, like on the hoods of people's cars, in front of people's ho- homes. And I told my kids, "Look, you either pee your pants or hold it. We will not <laughs> stop until we get out of Idaho." I'm sorry if you are listening from Idaho, but I was terrified. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the trip was okay. We um, had to do distance learning the whole time. So like everybody's like out on the boat and my kids are like in school and like super mad about it. I was mad too. This distance learning, this virtual learning is really challenging. Um, It's hard on the kids. It's hard on the teachers and the parents. Um, But also during the break, we got some good news. Kamala Harris is Biden's VP pick. And that makes the first generation American black girl and me Late for joy. So that was very exciting. Yeah, that was good news. Yeah, but then there was sad news because Black Panther Chadwick Boseman died. Um, 
And uh, racism is alive and well. So on with the show. We're not going okay. anywhere. We didn't fix it. Uh, <laughs> so now we're so going we're to keep trying. <laughs> we're going to keep, keep, do our best. Uh, so now we're going to dive into some listener. Ale- he- 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 there we go. Listener letters. <laughs> oh, hello. Thank you, Angel. You're very loud today, Angels. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> oh, it's not your fault. It's the coming angels. In, coming in hot, these angels. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what's in the bag, Beth? What you got in that bag? Well, first of all, I wanted to say thanks so much to uh, Tom Bray, who made us some Fruit Loops masks. Yes, they look fabulous. Yeah. In our Facebook group, she'd posted a pic of a face mask that she'd made with a Fruit Loops cereal print fabric. And she offered to make us some. So, of course, we jumped at that. Yeah, yeah. we want these Fruit Loops masks. <laughs> uh, but she didn't just make one for each of us. She also made one for old Whitey, one for each of Wendy's kids, and one for my daughter, too. Oh, wait, so, for reals? I didn't yeah. realize that. Oh, my yeah. God. That's so sweet. <laughs> it is. I super like, sweet. Oh, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Amber. I put the ones for old Whitey and you and the kids in your desk. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't realize that. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Tambre. Yes. They look awesome. And you did a really good job on uh, oh, the sewing. Let me get yeah. this. Let me get this boo or hip hop air horns. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for those. Yeah. We really, really do appreciate them. And we got an email from Cynthia who said, hello, I've been listening for a little while now and all caught up. It's so good and interesting. I love, love true crime. Love the hip hop air horn faux show. Hey. Culture Corner. <laughs> Just everything. I'm from Cincinnati and deaf. Remember the Anthony Kirkland case. Creepy. I'm deaf listening to the other POC podcast that y'all mentioned. So now I'm all podcast all all the time with occasional listening to music. And I'm the same way, Cynthia. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And she says, keep up the good work. Well, so Miss Cynthia, thank you. you so much for listening yeah. to our little, whoop, hang on a second, hip hop air horn, little technical diffs. Let me do that again. Cynthia, thank you so much, boo, for listening to our show. Oh, we love you and appreciate it. Yeah. What else we got? Oh, I have one more. I wanted to read read a bad review Uh-oh. that we got from Taco Sally 82 Uh-oh. via Apple Podcasts. Mm. And she said, quote, they can't shut up about supposed racism and have no idea what they're talking about. Ooh, Leave salty. your hypocritical political narrative out of your show, unquote. Ooh, to which I say, Sorry, not sorry. Ain't hey. never gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop, Fruit Loop yep. HQ. <laughs> the fact that you use the qualifier supposed before the word racism means that we actually need to talk about it even more. And Taco Sally, <laughs> you, in fact, don't know what the hell you're talking about. So, uh, And we mean that in the kindest way. <laughs> of course. God bless, God bless Taco Sally. Yes, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Heart child. Um, so uh, Beth is one bad white lady, so do not mess with her, okay? Uh, also, we got some new Patreons and patrons. Uh, Senny Hicks, Marie Alexandra, Gwyneth Not Paltrow, and Jennifer Great Dane Mom. So here goes your tunes, ladies and gents, and uh, gender nonconforming. Listen up, here goes. 
No, 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 no way. I'm living without you. I'm not living without you. Not living without you. I don't want to be free. I'm staying. I'm staying. And Sandy and Mary and Gwyneth and Jennifer, you're going to love me. That's right. That is in honor of Jay Hud, who is an element of the story today. And if I butchered it, as Beth said, sorry, not sorry, but thanks for being our patrons. And you all get hip hop air horns. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hi, everybody. I'm Lauren. I'm Michelle. And hi, I'm Shaniqua. And together we are Divas. And T. And we are the podcast that talks about women in business, but also spilling the tea. And we love to make sure that we cover topics that we feel that our fellow women in business would definitely want to hear about. We also use our platform for business advice, really great successful tips that not only you can use in your business, but you can also use in your home. We're also all about giving mental support to you as a listener. The world is indeed very crazy, especially if you are a lady. So we are here to give you all of that love and all of that support, Teasters. Now you can find us on most podcast platforms, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Where else can you find us, Michelle? YouTube. And where else, Shaniqua? Popular social media platforms, Facebook, as well as Instagram. Come sit down, stay a while, and sip some tea with us. Hey! (laughs) My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money 
to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. So we're back. Uh, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about William Balfour, the brother-in-law of Jennifer Hudson, the singer and actress. Okay. And uh, now we're going to get into some stats here. All right. Uh, William Balfour, a.k.a. J. Hud's former brother-in-law, killed three victims in Chicago. Let's speak their names. Rest in power, kings and queens. Jason Hudson was 29. Uh, His mother, Darnell Donerson, was 57. And Jillian King was just seven years old. Um, There were three, they were three black Chicagoans. And yes, uh, as we said, Jason was Jennifer Hudson's brother. Uh, Donnell was her mother and Julian was her nephew. Um, Balfour's MO was shooting with a gun and kidnapping. And the crimes took place in Chicago in October of 2008. So now we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. We've done a deep dive into the history of Chicago before, particularly episode 88 on Dorothy Williams. But here are the cliff notes. Over the centuries, the Miami, Sauk, Fox, and Potawatomi tribes all lived in the area along the Chicago River. They were there for a long time, minding their own damn business. That's right. When (laughs) Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable arrived around 1780. He was a man of mixed African and European ancestry. By the way, you should look up John Baptiste uh, Pont du Sable. It's it's an interesting story because we don't hear about other uh, black people who were sort of um, historic figures, right? Uh, in terms of the colonization of America. Yeah. Uh, in eighteen oh three, the U.S. Army came along and began destroying Indian communities. The area was plotted and lots were sold for the future city. The indigenous people fought back, but the Black Hawk War ended the last Native American resistance in the area, and Chicago was incorporated as a town, then as a city shortly thereafter. Chicago was one of the stops on the Great Migration and brought many Black people, the articles say migrants, but we here at Fruit Loops prefer refugees because they were fleeing racial violence and terror from the South. They found new opportunities in the North. Yes, they did. And I wanted to just say that people think, oh, they left the South and everything was great when they were in the North, but it really, <laughs> it really wasn't. wasn't. No, it was better, but it, a, a it little wasn't bit. great. Yeah, yeah, but they still encountered <laughs> uh, racism and uh, uh, violence, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Black people um, created the blues and jazz. And by the way, I was thinking, you think Black people would have had invented the blues if life was easy peasy lemon squeezy uh so there were tensions between 
the Black refugees and Chicago's Irish, Polish, and German ethnic groups who were um, previously discriminated against. We got an email from somebody who was like, when I talked about lynching in America and how it seemed to be um, an American, an um, American horrific thing, yeah. phenomenon. And he was talking about, oh, well, the Germans and the Polish and the Irish were discriminated against too. Yes, but not to this extent. Uh, to the point where Germans, Irish, and Polish are still fighting today just to be normal citizens with regular rights. Anyway, um, those populations were in fact discriminated against, but then became allies in the fight to maintain white supremacy, white supremacy, right? So they um, ended up being um, accepted because they were white. So they yeah. no longer needed that distinction because they could be used as agents to perpetuate white supremacy. Thank you. You're right. welcome. <laughs> In the 50s and 60s, Chicago's population shrank due to the leveling off of factory jobs and white flight. As late as 1940, all but three Chicago neighborhoods had white majority populations. The exceptions were Douglas, Grand Boulevard, and Washington Park. The heart of what is known as the Black Belt, the South Side ghetto to which Black people were confined. Right. But after World War II, white people began moving to the suburbs in what is known as white flight. As restrictive covenants that had prohibited Blacks from living in most neighborhoods were struck down by the courts, by 1950, the Black Belt had expanded, and by 1980, it encompassed most of the city's west and south sides. So in one generation, because of white flight, a third of the city's community areas went from monolithically white to monolithically black. Today, only 21 neighborhoods in Chicago have white majorities, and only 12 have white populations exceeding the national average of 63%. According to Edward McClellan of NBC Chicago, not even ethnic cleansing in the Balkans achieved the level of turnover that white flight in Chicago did. Wow, that's yeah. really saying something. something. <laughs> ooh, right. Oh, me, oh, my. Um, uh, I just... I, I'm still like scratching my head why um, white people are so of well back then why they were so afraid to have a black person in their neighbor like th there must have been some crazy ass propaganda like oh I'm being sure there was fed yeah. in their minds to make you and I I guess to some extent people still believe these kinds of things um, we're we're still seeing this kind of propaganda working today. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I just don't understand it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Will, William Balfour and the Hudson siblings grew up in the Chicago neighborhood of Inglewood. According to the Chicago Reporter, between 1960 and 1980, Inglewood's white population plummeted from about 52,000 to 800. And currently about 95% of the population in Englewood is black, less than 1% is, is white, and the rest are most mostly not Latinx. Now, that's pretty striking, 1% white. Yeah. Um, but I will also add that um, as somebody who... Um, has lived in black and brown neighborhoods and also lived in only white neighborhoods, there's sort of a sense of oh, like you can breathe when right. you're around other black people and, yeah. and or people who look like you. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. 
Anyway, many of the predominantly black neighborhoods on the South Side are impoverished. They lack educational resources and have high levels of street gang activity. Englewood on the South Side and Austin on the West Side have homicide rates that are 10 times higher than other parts of the city. Well, switch up the resources. Yeah. Uh, then crime and gang activity won't yep. be necessary ways for people to it's survive. It's kind of a simple solution. <laughs> Absolutely. Why is it so hard to get people to do that? <laughs> well, I think I think part of it is like um I've heard uh, I was just watching United Shades of America, great show on CNN, but they were talking about like Skid Row and how um everybody's like Throw more resources at, 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 at Skid Row. Give them more money. But the politicians are like, whoa, hold your horses. We can't give poor people money. They'll just spend it all. Um, and <laughs> it's just this idea that um, communities are asking for resources, but they're not trusted to be able to yeah. allocate them and use them themselves wisely. Like only the white politicians know the best way to handle this. And you guys just chill over there while we figure our shit out, except there's no time to waste. People are dying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Englewood uh, has an almost 40% unemployment rate. I guarantee that's way higher now due to COVID. Um, from the mid to late 20th century, the growth in Black income and Black employment was concentrated in the highly unionized manufacturing sector, where there were greater protections and equal opportunity and workplace diversity than in the private sectors. That all sounds good. But thousands of urban jobs were lost with the 1980s downturn in manufacturing, driven by improvements in productivity, as well as the movement of production overseas or to suburban sites. And Black neighborhoods bore the brunt of the major economic shift from manufacturing to service economies. Hey, you ever heard um, that saying that when a white guy sneezes, the black guy gets the flu. No, I haven't heard that one before. Just how like an a, a, an ish an economic shift or COVID, for example, can right. like um kind of bother a white white person people. Who's, yeah, but devastate destroy communities of yeah. color. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, in other news, public sector employment also fell drastically during the recession because of state and local government budget cuts, disproportionately affecting Black people. And Black people have less of a chance at getting a job in the private sector where there is greater racial discrimination and higher skills are required, which puts Black people at a disadvantage when their schools are also usually impoverished. According to Valerie Wilson of the Economic Policy Institute, nationally and at the state level, the rate of black unemployment is typically at least twice that of white unemployment. Mm -hmm. But in Illinois, the estimates show that the black unemployment rate was three times higher than the white unemployment rate. That is staggering. And yeah. again, I think that when we learn about the crime statistics in Chicago and, you know, politicians use that as a um, it's like a, a talking point for both sides, Democratic and, and, and Republican. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, I think unemployment is, again, a contributing factor to the the crime rate. Anyway, Mm. I'll shut up on that. In West Englewood, uh, where only 7% of residents are college educated, many people resort to to (laughs) temporary jobs to get commission-based jobs that last for just days or weeks. The jobs often um, have extremely long commute, and the work is usually just for a few hours. Another major hurdle for the unemployed in West Englewood is the neighborhood's reputation as one of the most dangerous places in Chicago, plagued by gang violence and violent crimes. With news headlines often highlighting crime in the neighborhood, residents often face bias from possible employers. Yeah, in 2008, M. Spencer Green was the mayor. So just painting the picture, y'all. M. Spencer Green was the mayor. Oprah Winfrey, my girl, was still on the air, Auntie O. Uh, The media only talks about the violence and corruption in Chicago. And while the city is so much more than that, the murder rate in Chicago uh, did increase uh, from 443 in 2007 to 513 in 2008, the year we're talking about. For context, uh, crime was twice that high in the uh, 90s. Um, It also increased in 2016 as Obama was leaving office. And now due to problems like unemployment, economic strife, consequences, I believe, are related to COVID-19. Crime rate is also on the rise, according to a news report I saw the other day on the nightly news in Chicago. So um, now we are going to dive into uh, Balfour's early life. So Hit it, Beth. Jason, Julia, and Jennifer Hudson were brought up by their mother, Darnell Donerson, who has been described as a wonderful mother who loved to cook, especially for other people. Mm. If you dropped by Darnell's house, it was likely she would fix you a plate. That is a sign of love. Welcome yes. to Culture Corner. We've heard of people <laughs> fixing plates before. And in the African-American community, when somebody fixes you a plate, it's like saying, welcome, welcome, be a part. Come in. It's like a hug, but for your stomach. Uh, (laughs) Their father, Samuel Simpson, was a bus driver. Jennifer did not know her father while she was growing up, but by the time she became a teenager, she sought him out. She then learned that she had many siblings, at least 26 half-brothers and sisters, which is a lot. Um, Mr. Simpson then came to live with the Hudson family until he died in 1999. Darnell was a religious woman, and Jennifer sang in the church choir. Mm. Later at Dunbar Vocational High School, she sang in the spirit choir and in the chorale. As an adult, she wanted to be on American Idol, but tested herself first by getting a job singing on a Disney cruise ship. Woo-wee, and now we're getting this... (laughs) Jennifer Hudson is my forever American idol. You know how Barack Obama's like my forever president? Yeah. At the age of 22, Jennifer Hudson appeared on the third season of American Idol in 2004 and soon became a fan favorite. I'll say voted for her every week, multiple (laughs) times. Uh, But she was voted off after reaching the top seven, which shocked fans. I know, right? Elton John was so taken aback that he publicly denounced the elimination as incredibly racist. Uh, I was outraged as well. And quite frankly, 2004 was the last year I watched any American Idol. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. yeah. I never watched it. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. Don't yeah. you? What do you not believe in dreams? You hate music? <laughs> um, I, I didn't like Simon Cowell. <laughs> oh, OK. Fair enough. Nobody did. 
Nobody does. <laughs> yeah. I can't I can't stand that kind of thing. He's so mean. I yeah. just don't like that. And then the the singing is eh, just all right. But <gasps> Santa Maria. Oh I know. I know. Uh, I so know. full disclosure, I've auditioned for American Idol. Did Obviously you really? didn't get on. Yeah, when they came to Phoenix. Oh wow. Um and uh but Simon Cowell is in hot water these days y'all. Uh he uh they said that America's Got Talent was uh, well Gabby Union's perspective was um a racist um environment. Um Oh wow. For, I, I believe it. Yeah. For women of color and Simon Cowell is um a big part of her complaint and she's actually suing I think it's I don't know if it's Fox or NBC. She's suing the network and she's suing the show for her treatment. Of her and for I think they let her go, wow. um, but yeah, Simon Cowell sounds like not only was a he a jerk bag. on TV, but a, yeah, a difficult individual to work with and be yeah. around. Anyway, yeah. sorry to cut you off. Go ahead, no, go that's ahead, okay. Beth. <laughs> but despite being voted off Idol in 2006, she appeared opposite Beyonce and Dreamgirls and took home the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 2007. Again. And I have to say, she was awesome. Incredible. In that movie. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Dreamgirls, I'll never leave you. <laughs> By the way, this was also at a time in my life where I was like, I'm going to be like a famous singer and actress. So I would go on all these auditions and guess what song I sang? Every single time, J-Hud. Uh, no, 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 no way. You know what happened when I sang at the top of the show? Anyway, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> as well as that Oscar, Jennifer Hudson has won two Grammys, a Golden Globe, a SAG Award, and a BAFTA. Ooh, man, she really is incredible. Dream yeah. girls will never leave you. <laughs> I loved that movie. And then I was like, wait a minute, it's a play? <laughs> <laughs> don't care i'm just gonna watch the movie again uh by contrast um william balfour came from a very dysfunctional family he was raised by his mother and godmother uh while his father served 30 years in prison for murder his grandmother was incarcerated in 1969 for manslaughter and his brother also had a lengthy criminal record according to some sources william's mother was abusive and in 1993 the illinois department of children and family services found evidence she was abusing her sons, mm. including an incident in which she tied up William's older brother, stuck a sock in his mouth, and beat him senseless. Oh my goodness. Okay, yeah, that is um, that is obviously wrong. But yeah. um, I will say that um, from a Black person's perspective, that does seem extreme, but the idea of your parents beating your um, ass as a as a black person uh it doesn't sound um insane to me um and i've i've said this before on the show that for some black people this trauma um s- follows us for generations right and so if your right. parents beat your ass to keep you in line or to protect you essentially because if you go out into a white world and you are not perfectly behaved the 
the punishment could be far worse than an ass beating, which right. I think is w- one way that parents, black parents might have justified being so strict and so um, use such harsh physical discipline. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, at the age of 14, William was arrested for possession of heroin and possession 14 and possession of a stolen vehicle. His mother then gave up her parental rights because she said she had lost control of him and he went into the foster care system. Um, But he ran away every chance he got. In 1997, he was placed in a group home downstate in Urbana, Illinois, where he attended 10th grade for two months before returning to Chicago. He dropped out of school and at the age of 15, he became a member of the Gangster Disciples, a big street gang in Chicago, where his nickname was Flex. By the way, given his background, are we surprised that he turned to uh, joining nope. a gang. I don't think so. Nope. Survey says Steve Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, by the way, welcome to Culture Corner. Flex refers to flexing your muscles, but it is also slang meaning to show off, whether it's your physique or your belongings or some other thing you consider superior to those uh, of others. It's it's a power move. You know, when you flex on bitches, you know what right. I mean? As one does. So you th- do you think uh, since his nickname was Flex, that he was kind of a braggart yeah or a show-off right right that was my impression from that nickname but you know what gangster disciples maybe they you know what cut that out i don't want them to contact me and explain yeah never mind Uh, but if anybody listening knew him maybe i don't know maybe there's um chicago fruit loops gang who um is familiar with this story more than we are, who maybe knows. Um, But he worked at low-paying jobs, one as a grill man in a Wendy's restaurant and another at a steakhouse salad bar. He also began working on a long criminal rap sheet in 1998. He was arrested while driving a stolen vehicle. He was out on bond on November 29th, 1998, when a man saw William breaking into his brand new Chevy Suburban. The man named Charles Gardner tried to stop him by jumping on top of the vehicle. Wow. Yeah. But William, then 17, drove off with Charles still hanging on the roof rack. Oh, me. Oh, my. William tried to knock Charles off of the suburban by driving over bumpy terrain and swerving, but uh, Charles was still able to hang on to the vehicle. Oh, my God. That's a scene out of a movie. I know. Uh, Holy moly. Then as police caught up with him, he drove through alleys, front yards, through a police barricade and onto the Dan Ryan Expressway. Sometimes it speeds nearing 100 miles an hour, all with Charles still clinging (laughs) to the top of the suburban. Man, this man. Uh, his determination. Um, William eventually crashed into a telephone pole and fled. Charles suffered burns from fallen electrical wire- wires and other injuries, but he survived. Whew. William was charged with attempted murder, vehicular hijacking, and possession of a stolen vehicle. Because he was 18, he was tried as an adult. Mm. According to court documents, William told the judge that he had a good relationship with his mother until, quote, she gets an attitude. 
Huh, that's very interesting. Interesting. Oh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save this thought for my takeaways. Uh, okay. William, William pleaded guilty to attempted murder and car hijacking. And uh, in October of 1999, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. In May of 2006, he was released and he returned to the Englewood neighborhood where he grew up. As an ex-con, William had difficulty finding a job. He finally found employment as a baker, but he was also a drug dealer. He also reconnected with Julia Hudson, one of the three Hudson siblings he had known while attending Yale Elementary School in Inglewood. Julia was a single mother who drove a school bus for a living and lived with her mother and brother Jason. William and Julia had a whirlwind romance, and five days after Christmas in 2006, the then 25-year-old William Balfour married 29-year-old Julia Hudson. That same month, Julia's sister Jennifer Hudson starred in the movie Dream Girls, Dream Girls will never leave you, <laughs> a role that would earn Jennifer Hudson an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. According to his mother, Michelle Balfour, William, quote, was in love with Julia and Julia loved him, unquote. According to Jennifer Hudson, quote, none of us wanted Julia to marry him. We did not like how he treated her. Where he was, I tried not to be, unquote. Mm-mm-mm. According to a neighbor named uh, Kevin Bennett, William was always doing crazy things, uh, trying to carjack people. He was asked. He was always asking for money. Uh, Bennett said that people were stunned when Julia married William, um, whom he described as someone that he did his best to avoid. Reminds me of the song. I don't want no scrub. Scrub. Yeah. <laughs> no love from me. Doesn't he seem like a scrub? Yeah, yeah, he does. You're right. So now we're going to get into the timeline. What do you got for us, Beth? The couple lived with Julia's mother, Darnell, and Julia's brother, Jason, in the Hudson family home in Englewood. At some point, Jason had been shot in the leg, but he never sought medical attention. And afterwards, his mobility was limited and he used a cane to walk. Mm. Julia had a seven-year-old son, Julian King, from an earlier relationship with a man named Gregory King. And Julian also lived in the family home. Balfour was at times loving towards little Julian and treated him like his own son, but often became jealous of the attention that Julia gave to her son. Um, Julia later testified at trial uh, that Balfour would get jealous uh, that he would even become angry when Julian kissed his mother. Uh, He would tell the seven-year-old, get off my wife, she testified. That makes me mad. <laughs> it does. Yeah, me too. I mean, can you just imagine how sweet and innocent a little boy is loving on yeah. his mom and, and that being interrupted? Yeah. The marriage began to sour. And according to the neighbor we mentioned earlier, Kevin Bennett, it was well known that Julia Hudson wanted out. Quote, Julia didn't want to deal with him because he, she started to see what kind of person he was, he said. Mm-hmm. Julia mm-hmm. was already leaving him and he got mad about that. Balfour was thrown out of the Hudson home by Julia's mother at some point in the winter of 2007-2008. But during the eight months 
that the couple was separated, they were still in frequent contact and were still sometimes intimate. On numerous occasions, Balfour had threatened to kill Julia's family and then her if she did not come back to him. Red flag. Yeah, big red flag. (laughs) In June of 2008, police stopped a vehicle that had turned a corner at high speed in an area where they were investigating calls of shots fired. Balfour was the driver and police said they found drugs in the car. The Illinois Department of Corrections was contacted about the new drug charges because Balfour was on parole, but the agency decided not to return him to prison. The court dismissed the case in July after a Cook County Circuit judge found that police had no probable cause to arrest Balfour. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. They didn't? Does they not didn't. seem like a complete, yeah. um, like, fuck like up. Op- opposite, opposite world? <laughs> yeah, like, what... <laughs> What is what is happening? Um, in August of 2008, Balfour attended a birthday party for the little boy of one of Julia's co-workers, Jeannie Myers. Jeannie's husband, Robin, noticed that Balfour had a gun on his waistband at a child's birthday party. Come on, bro. Uh, is this is this your man's <laughs> like, come get you, come get your guy. He's going cuckoo. Uh, Balfour um, struck up a conversation with Robin during which Balfour complimented Robin's wife, Jeannie, saying that she was more caring and nice than his own wife, whom he thought was cheating on him with someone from work. He told Robin that if it proved to be true, quote, I'm fucking her and him up, end quote. Balfour complained that Julia's uh, complained about Julia's family, saying that the, quote, fat bitch, meaning Darnell, did not want him around, and the, quote, fat ass, meaning Jason, claimed Balfour was stealing, which, by the way, he was. Mm. <laughs> At least 10 times during this conversation, Balfour made threats against one or more members of the Hudson family. At this point, Balfour had known Robin Myers for about 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Um, <laughs> poor, poor Robin. He's like, uh, cool, bro. I gotta uh, go. <laughs> I gotta go. But I wonder if it would have been safe for him to alert somebody, an authority at that time. I mean, 
um, you know, yeah, you're not supposed to snitch, I right? I don't. I was just yeah, wondering I don't about know. that. Um, yeah. Malfour actually told many people outside of the family that he meant to do harm to his wife and members of her family, particularly her brother Jason, who was also a cocaine dealer and the object of scorn from Malfour, uh, and whom he openly mocked because of his weight. Not cool. Um, Barfour had also stolen Jason's gun and seen and was seen in possession of it only days before the murders. Also in August, Deborah Hampton, a regular customer of Balfour's, was looking to buy crack, and Balfour told her to meet him in the back of the Hudson home, which was about a block from her house. When she got there, she saw Balfour crouched down near a window, peering into the Hudson home. Balfour admitted that he was watching Julia and her new boyfriend in the home. Creepy. So much. Um, so many problems uh, with this individual's behavior. Yeah. Um, early in the morning of October 24th, 2008, Balfour went to his wife's home where he peered into her bedroom window as she was dressing before going to work. She allowed him in the house and talk um, to talk while she continued to get ready for work. She noted that he smelled of alcohol. Balfour saw some balloons and flowers that someone had given to Julia, and they began to argue about the fact that she was seeing somebody else during their separation. Balfour was known by many to be very agitated about this, despite the fact that he himself had at least two girlfriends. Um, hold the phone. <laughs> uh, so... He's being completely unfaithful, completely disrespecting oh, yeah. and disregarding her worth or value as a human being or his wife. And uh, he is mad that she is allegedly like having, a, you know, taking care of herself and getting, yep. you know, getting what she wants and deserves. Like, I just, ugh, disgusting. Yeah. Uh, in fact, just the day before, Balfour had been at the home of one of his girlfriends, Shanta Kathy, and he had been involved with Shanta for several months, during which time he would sleep at her house four or five nights a week. At first, she was unaware that he was still married, but she later learned that fact and also that he had at least one other girlfriend. This guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's a piece of work. Oh, my God. He left Shanta's house early that day saying he would be back, but he never returned, claiming that he could not get back and that he needed a jack for his car. But he had actually spent the night with another girlfriend named Diana. Mm. However, that didn't stop him from also trying to call Julia twice on his cell phone in the middle of the night. Man, um... Deeply insecure, deeply problematic behavior. Um, back to the day of the murders, though, when Julia left the house, Balfour left with her. She then drove off to go to work. Balfour lingered in his car near the home for a while before going to a service station to buy uh, power steering fluid. Shortly after Julia got to work, she saw a letter informing her that wages were going to be garnished because Balfour had failed to pay on a car loan that was in both of their names. Son of a bitch. This led to a cell phone call to Balfour and another argument. Sometime around 9 a.m., a bullet was fired through the front door of the Hudson home. Inside the home, Julia's mother was shot in the back. She walked further into the house and was shot again, this time in the chest, landing on the living room floor. Jason was also shot to death in his bedroom, and Julian disappeared from the home, as did Jason's white SUV. So he's been drinking, right? He's agitated by the fight 
that he had with Julia before they left and then after right. they after when they were on the phone and then boom he just snapped. Yep. Um Balfour arrived at the home of Shante Kathy around noon carrying a bottle of Hennessy. Uh he soon see that dark liquor. <laughs> Stay away. Uh, he, he soon left uh, carrying a blue uh, Timberland, carrying a pair of blue Timberland boots. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Timberlands? Uh, I am not. Okay. Well, uh, they are uh, fashionable boots um, that um, in the, uh, I guess, hip hop or black culture um, individuals wear. They are um, very nice looking. They're very tough and durable looking. Um, and uh, very expensive as well. Um, A couple hours later, while Shanta was out shopping, she ran into Balfour walking on a sidewalk. And Balfour was still dressed in the same outfit as when he left the house, a white hoodie, black pants, and a pair of Air Jordans. And he was going uh, to check on his car. An hour later, he returned to her house, but the hoodie and sneakers were gone and he was wearing a red Pele jacket and the Timberland boots that he was carrying earlier. He said he had a headache. Kathy thought he looked upset, so she followed him to the bedroom where he said if anybody asked, she was to say that he'd been there since 10 a.m. Then he blurted out, they got shot. Who, she asked, her mother and brother, he said, and she stared at him, crazy and bug-eyed. Balfour told her that he went to the Hudson house and the brother rushed him, so Balfour shot him and, quote, the mother was coming down the stairs calling his name, and quote, so he shot her too. She then asked about the little boy and Balfour said he was outside and assured her that she had nothing to worry about. She then said, I hope ain't nothing happened to the little boy. And he repeated that she had nothing to worry about. Kathy later said that she was terrified for her safety and that of her two young children. So she agreed to serve as Balfour's alibi if police inquired about his whereabouts. She allowed him to hide out the rest of the day in her apartment where she said he talked on his phone and watched television. She later later said, I was scared and wanted to do everything he wanted so he wouldn't hurt us. Makes sense. About 3 p.m., Julia returned home from work, having just received a text message from Balfour in which he said he wanted to, quote, get down with her that night. Um, and I believe that means he wanted to hook up have uh, yeah. to have sex with her. Yeah, yes, exactly. After he killed, he he had to have known that she was going to find their bodies. Ooh, that is disgusting, despicable, yeah. and ugh. um, I God, I really hate this guy. <laughs> uh, as Julia approached the front door, she saw the bullet hole, but noticed that the door was still locked. She then unlocked the door, walked into the home, and saw her mother's dead body on the floor. She ran screaming from the home and got a neighbor to go into the house to check on her mother, brother, and son. The neighbor came out with the news that the young boy was nowhere to be found and that the two others were dead. Julia called 911 and police arrived at the home where they soon confirmed that Julian was missing, along with Jason's white SUV. I remember when the news came out about this story and the boy was still not found. And yep. I just remember aerial photos of family and police moving around the front of the house, you know, and the, and the yeah. caution tape. And it was like, <gasps> uh, just was a really a crazy, tense moment. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So when asked if there was anybody who might want to harm her family, Julia immediately gave police officers the name of her estranged husband, who made threats to her and her family. A neighbor told officers that he was aware Balfour was stalking Julia and that Balfour had, quote, made comments that he was going to kill everyone in the house, end quote. Neighbors reported hearing gunshots that came from the direction of the Hudson Hudson home shortly after 9 a.m., which did not alarm them because, unfortunately, it was a relatively common occurrence in the Englewood neighborhood. While Julia was standing with police outside her home, Balfour called her and said that he had been told about the shootings by someone in the neighborhood. Interesting. Uh, He said he was, quote, up north, end quote, but was coming right over. Instead, he stayed on the west side. He spent some of his time trying to get somebody to move his car to the west side since it was stranded on the south side and trying to create alibis for his whereabouts earlier in the day. I laugh because it's just so silly. Yeah, yeah. Because Julian was missing, an Amber Alert was issued and CPD had officers from its special victims unit on the scene. Balfour's cell carrier was contacted and asked to use cell tower data in an effort to locate him. Cell tower triangulation showed that Balfour was somewhere in the neighborhood of Shanta Cathy's house. That's some good police work. Yeah. And I do not say that often, especially (laughs) about the Chicago Police Department. Uh, Later that afternoon, more than a dozen police officers converged on Shanta Cathy's residence. Balfour attempted to flee and briefly resisted arrest. But both Balfour and Shanta were taken into custody for questioning. Balfour was found to be in possession of his cell phone, some keys, and a Chicago Transit Authority pass. Police later identified the keys as belonging to Jason Hudson's SUV. Balfour was interviewed over a couple of hours. He claimed that right after seeing his wife that morning, his car broke down and he went to get some power steering fluid. He then claimed that around 830, he parked his car near Robeson High School, located several blocks from the Hudson home, and then took the CTA, which is Chicago's public transportation, to Kathy's home using his CTA pass. He told police that he got to her home around 10 a.m. and that he had been there ever since. He tried to persuade uh, police that the murders happened because Jason ran a drug house, quote unquote, that Jason had enemies. He told them that Jason had been shot before and that the house had been burglarized while Balfour was incarcerated a few months earlier. Balfour was instructed to give police the shirt and pants he was wearing, and Balfour made a point to tell detectives that he had been wearing those clothes all day. Which he hadn't been. <laughs> right. Because he got rid of the other clothes he was mm-hmm, wearing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kathy was taken to an interrogation room where she initially backed up Balfour's alibi by claiming that he had been at her home as early as 10 in the morning. But she eventually told police that he had actually arrived two hours later. She then spoke of his behavior in the hours before being arrested, which included changing his clothes while away from the home and his statement that he had killed his mother-in-law and brother-in-law while his stepson Julian was outside. William Balfour was held for 48 hours. He was then taken into custody by the Illinois Department of Corrections on a suspected parole violation. Meanwhile, the citywide search for Julian King continued. The murders and the search made national headlines because of the relationship of the victims to Jennifer Hudson. Yeah, I really don't think it would have gotten the attention that it got had uh, Jennifer Hudson 
not been you are a hundred percent yeah i agree hundred percent yeah another another shooting um with dead black people in chicago yeah heard it before yeah three days after the murders a woman named lynette williams called police after seeing a white suv parked near her home that matched media reports related to the hudson murders she first remembered seeing the suv on the morning after the murders and when she saw media reports over the weekend about the murders and the search for julie she thought it might be related inside the suv which was located about two miles from shanta kathy's home police saw a child's hand oh boy you gave me this line a child's hand sticking out from <laughs> from under a shower curtain that covered a body which lay on the floor of the car's back seat it was seven-year-old julian and he had been shot in the head Investigators determined that the driver's seat was less than two feet from the brake pedal, which was inconsistent with Jason's size, but was consistent with Balfour's considerably smaller size. Police conducted a massive foot search of the streets, alleys, and yards between the vehicle's location and Shanta Cathay's Cathay's residence, a distance of approximately two miles. Just a half a block from the vehicle's location, searchers found a gun that was identified by numerous witnesses as Jason Hudson's and whose ballistics matched the bullets that killed all three victims. And Balfour was arrested at Stateville Correctional Center where he was being held on the parole violation charges. Um, so now we are going to dive into the trial. After answering questions about their knowledge of singer and actress Jennifer Hudson, 12 jurors and six alternates were chosen for the trial. The jury was composed of 10 women and eight men and was reportedly racially diverse. Judge Charles Burns asked the jurors not to watch the television show American Idol before the trial began because Hudson was scheduled to make an appearance on an upcoming episode. Wow, in the midst of all of this, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Um, Balfour pleaded not guilty to the charges and claimed he was nowhere near the house when the murders occurred. During opening statements, Balfour's defense attorney told jurors that police targeted him for the crime because they were under pressure to quickly solve what they knew would become a high profile case because Jennifer because of Jennifer Hudson's celebrity. On April 23rd, 2012, Jennifer Hudson, the first witness to be called on by the prosecution, testified in court against William Balfour. While remembering her family, she reportedly broke down in tears several times on the stand. Julia took the stand later the same day and said that her husband threatened her because she wanted to separate, telling her, quote, if you leave me, you'll be the last to die. I'll kill your family first, unquote. I just feel so bad for Julia. Yeah. This is yeah. um uh, terrible. It is, yeah, terrible. Really, really, really tragic. Uh, the prosecution called other witnesses who testified that Balfour had threatened to kill members of the Hudson family on at least two dozen occasions before the murders. Uh, witnesses also also testified that they had seen Balfour in possession of Jason Sig's sour semi-automatic weapon. Ballistic evidence showed that the four fired cartridge cartridge cases from the Hudson home and the three bullets from autopsies were all fired by that same gun. A CTA witness testified that Balfour's CTA pass had not been used on the date of the murders, although Balfour had told police that he used the pass around nine that morning to get to Shanta Cathy's apartment. 
government. Cell phone activity evidence also was also introduced, which outlined some of Balfour's whereabouts that day. Prosecutors produced several witnesses who said they were contacted by Balfour on the date of the murders and asked to provide him with an alibi or sketchy sounding assistance of some sort. Several friends of Balfour's testified about phone calls and text exchanges in the afternoon hours in which he either asked them for help with his car for or for an alibi. If asked, they were to say that he had been out west all day. A man named William Graham, who lived on the same street as Shanta Cathy, testified that he saw Balfour around noon on the day of the murders driving a white SUV, which he parked in a vacant lot up against a building across from Graham's house, even though there were plenty of spaces down the block in front of the home where he knew Balfour stayed. He told the jury he found this odd because Balfour had never driven that vehicle before and Balfour had always parked near where he was staying. He saw Balfour get out of the SUV and walk to Kathy's home with a bottle of liquor. Shanta Kathy also testified and told the court about Balfour's admission to her that he had killed Darnell and Jason. She also admitted that she had lied to police for a number of hours before telling them the truth. And in May of 2012, after a three-day deliberation, the jury found Balfour guilty of three counts of first-degree murder, as well as home invasion, aggravated kidnapping, residential burglary, and possession of a stolen motor vehicle. Jurors said Balfour's cell phone records were the key uh, piece of evidence, allowing the jury to piece the timeline together and figure out that, quote, he could not be in two places at once, end quote. Also key were two videos. One was a security video from a high school showing the time Balfour's car was left parked on the street, which was at 12.30 p.m. And the other, the police interrogation video in which Balfour claims that he left it there at 8.30 a.m. on the day of the murders, proving that Balfour lied. Gotcha, bitch. Uh, the sentencing hearing was held in July of 2012. During the, the hearing, Balfour told the court, my deep, quote, my deepest sympathies go to Julian King. I loved him. I still love him, end quote. Uh, no, you didn't. Uh, under Illinois law, because Balfour had been convicted of more than one murder, the sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole was predetermined. Therefore, Jennifer and Julia Hudson chose not to read victim impact statements. However, Julian's father, Gregory King, did. On the stand, he recalled the desperate three-day search for Julian that ended when his body was found inside Jason Hudson's stolen SUV on the west side. Quote, instantly, it was like a chunk of my heart was ripped out, he said. I felt hopeless. I was filled with rage for William Balfour, the man who murdered my son. I'm glad somebody made an impact statement. Yeah, me too. King also spoke of missing the little things about his son, like... um picking him up from school and going on field trips with him. Quote, I even miss his uh, bugging me about SpongeBob SquarePants, a cartoon character that was kind that he was kind of afraid of, end quote, King said. Judge Charles Burns called William Balfour's statement of love for Julian, quote, an insult to all of us, saying, your heart is an Arctic night and your soul is as barren as dark space. Julian shared his life with you. For sure, he looked up to you. There's no doubt in my mind he looked up to you as you were putting bullets into his head. I just hope his terror was short-lived. Wow. Yeah. That, whoo. Um, 
you know what? That's all folks. Episodes that you could stop recording now. That uh, <laughs> I'm That's done. It, yeah. <laughs> uh, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, the Hudson family created the Hudson King Foundation for families of slain victims, a foundation to care for the needs of families who have lost relatives to violent crime. They also set up a charity in Julian's name called the Julian D. King Gift Foundation. According to their website, it was established to provide stability, support, and positive experiences for children of all backgrounds to help enable them to grow to be productive, confident, and happy adults. And every year they help children in need, collecting and distributing school supplies and Christmas presents. In February of 2016, Balfour gave an interview to ABC7, Why, in which he claimed that he was innocent and that his conviction was the result of police conspiracy. Now, hold the phone, because Chicago PD, lots of police departments, but Chicago PD in particular, we talked about this, I think, in the last episode we covered somebody yeah. from Chicago. They don't have a great track record with regard to to just how they conduct themselves in right. forced confessions, et cetera, et cetera, corruption. Um, so he said that all of the evidence against him was planted. Uh, and, and the reason why I bring that up is, is that it's not unheard of that they yeah. might engage in conspiracy. But in yeah. this case, nah, this ain't, that, <laughs> this ain't it, Mr. Balfour. In the video, he says, I didn't have nothing to do with her family being killed, period. Uh, he also stated that anyone who would kill a child is Heartless, straight heartless. He ain't got no family morals, nothing. Uh, we I say agree. that when you were looking in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Balfour appealed his case but was denied. He's currently serving a life sentence without parole in Pontiac Correctional Center in Pontiac, Illinois. By the way, it's not called Pontiac because of the car. Pontiac was a indigenous, indigenous. American tribe. Yep. Yep. Uh, so now we're going to get into basically our takeaways. So uh, I think instability and abuse as a child. His father was in prison and his home was volatile enough that CPS has reports. Uh, yeah. I think um, that also the... Um, his mother, his relationship with his mother sounds like it was really not good. Really weird, yeah. Yeah, really weird. And um, I think that contributed to uh, a man, like his, uh, to him being very insecure and anxious um, as an individual. And he lacked um, the essentials of knowing that he was cared for and respected and accepted, right? That's how you... You want, don't want to create a serial killer, yeah. right? Somebody who's cared for, respected, and accepted. Yeah. And um, he just didn't get all those things. He was a person who engaged in crime and substance use at a really young age. Really risky crimes like car theft and heroin at 14. What the yeah, fuck? Yeah, that's crazy. I was just trying to like do my algebra. <laughs> what is he? What? Wow. And yeah. growing up poor and black in Chicago, survival is not guaranteed. Um, so people find themselves... Uh, engaging in crimes to survive. And I can't say for sure, but if there was an economic, educational, health, and community support for Balfour and people like him, there would be no need or less of a need to turn to crime substances or allow mental health issues to go untreated. Yeah. Intervention by law enforcement and the justice system did not prevent Balfour's decline or the deaths of three beautiful souls and holes and hearts in the surviving family members. Not not excuses, just explanations. That's right. my thoughts. 
Yeah. And I agree a hundred percent. That's all true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. you came from a dysfunctional family and was surrounded by violence and crime. And, uh, you know, one of the problems that we see in this country is our educational sy- system that sucks. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we can do better. And um, the public schools are funded in large part by the taxes collected in the neighborhoods where they exist. So poor neighborhoods don't the schools don't get as much money as in uh, rich neighborhoods. Right. Less tax revenue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they should all be funded equally. I think that's a shitty system mm-hmm. and we should do do it a different way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. They should all be funded equally. That way the kids in the poor neighborhoods would not get screwed, leaving them vulnerable to drug abuse, gangs, and violent crime. Uh, We need to spend more money on education. Um, Do we really need more than half of our federal budget going to defense? I don't think so. I do not think so. Only about 6% of our budget goes to education. Mm, 6%. That's abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. We need to pay our teachers more, maybe even start kids learning trades early because not everyone wants to or can go to college, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they should miss out on a good career in a trade. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a school in Mesa called Evit Mm -hmm. where uh, high school kids can learn all kinds of different trades. And I believe that's in addition to their high school coursework so they can enroll at Evit. They go to regular high school and then they have to figure out some way to get to Evit so that they can also take classes there. I don't know if the schools provide buses to get them there, but in any case, I think every kid in the U.S. should have something like this available to them and it should be made simple, free and easy to get there. Yeah. And then how about if all the high school kids had to take X amount of introductory classes in different trades each year just so they can see what it's all about like trade school day instead of that stupid ass field day we used to have to do (laughs) yeah i remember you telling me about that (laughs) yeah (laughs) almost like an expo i don't know i don't have all the answers but um i do know that we can do better for our children and it's imperative that we do and if we want a better society and if we care about the future that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. By the way, shout out. There's a really great podcast about our education system called Nice White Parents. And hmm. the reason why schools are not always in such good condition is because nice white parents get in the way. Oh, uh, yeah. It's very interesting. So give it huh. a listen. Okay, cool. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So, excuse me. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) All right. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up to generic tips. Okay, so these are um, just some very generic 
um, generalized domestic violence um, tips and resources. We will put these in the show notes um, so that you will be able to um, share them with your friends or use them yourself. Um, I have discovered that every state has organizations specific to that state to help with domestic violence and inter, um, intimate partner violence. Um, there are teen-specific organizations, LGBTQ-specific organizations, and culturally-specific organizations, again, for domestic violence and um, intimate partner violence um, that can help. But the National Domestic Violence Hotline is a good place to start if you or someone you know may be a victim of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Um, I just found a few tips on the interwebs, create a safety plan with ways to remain safe while in relationship, planning to leave or after you leave. Uh, because there may be limited shelter availability due to COVID-19, consider alternatives such as staying with family or friends, staying in motels or sleeping in your vehicle. Um while people are encouraged to stay at home, you may feel isolated from your friends and family. Even if you are isolated, try to maintain social connections online or over the phone if it is safe to do so and try to stick to your daily routines as much as possible. Again, um, those are some general tips I found on some uh, DV slash IPV um, websites and we will put um, ways for you to get in touch with professionals in this field. Um, <laughs> Um, so there you Good go. Good tips. Thank you. Now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content, basically any content by any marginalized or othered people, women, people of color, all the things. This week, we want to shout out and give some shine again to the Black-owned company, The Butters. We love them. Yeah. Their tagline is Black and Gay AF 365. <laughs> so you know we have to support that. Absolutely, yeah. We tried another couple of new products from The Butters. A room spray called Island Breeze Odor Destroying Vibe Cleansing Spray. And The Butters Medical Grade Household disinfectant. The room spray smells great and really works. Yeah, it does. It does. It's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I kept spraying it around the house because it smelled so good. <laughs> yeah, me too. I sprayed it around the house, in my car, at my office. Oh, Ooh. good idea. Yes. The car. Yes, girl. Yeah, I like uh, that. <laughs> the description for the Island Breeze scent is a tranquil bouquet of water lotus, lily of the valley, rose water, star jasmine, violet petals, white musk, precious woods, and sea moss. Mm -mm -mm. Mm -hmm. The disinfectant meets the EPA's criteria for the use against the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, which we all could use. Amen? Yes. Uh, I was so happy to have it because it's really hard to find disinfectant spray around here right now anyway, and I had just ran out. I went to Target, uh, like physically, went into the store because I have been ordering groceries and it's never available. I thought I might find some, but no, the shelves were still bare. Anyway, I cleaned my kitchen with it and it smells so clean. I'm going to snag some more while I can. Great idea. Oh, yes, indeed. I also cleaned my desk at work. Oh, good idea. Yeah. Yes. Disinfected the whole thing, girl. Yes. The, uh, the germs are not getting me today. No, not today, <laughs> Satan. So it's all there. Yeah. Get the butters. They've got face stuff body stuff, hair stuff, sex stuff, bath stuff, all the stuff. Yeah. Check out their products at getthebutters.com. Do it. 
and you can also follow them on IG at uh, Get the Butters. And um, we uh, highly recommend it because it's good yeah. stuff, y'all. Yeah. Um, and then also we want to shout out a true crime goodie. The story of Diane Downs uh, continues through the lens of her daughter, Becky Babcock. It's Happy Face 2 uh, or Happy Face 2 Face in its weekly podcast series. Um, also, have you heard about Lovecraft Country? I have. Yeah. Oh, I've been watching every episode twice because I keep. Oh, wow. I freaking love it. Wow. Uh, so it's a new take on H.P. Lovecraft's horror, and you're not going to believe this, but H.P. Lovecraft was a wild racist. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. So Lovecraft Country reimagines the horror where Black people are the protagonists, and Tick, his uncle, and his childhood friend set out on a road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America. And uh, you see them struggle to survive in um, a racist uh, America and also try to survive these terrifying monsters. <laughs> uh, and um, the monsters, uh, actually, in my opinion, are a relief compared to the horrors <laughs> of the, the racists. I'm like, Whoa, wow, that monster just bit somebody's head off. At least the sheriff is gone. Whoa. Uh, but it is it is so good. And even better, there is a podcast to go along along with it called Lovecraft oh, Country Radio. Cool. Okay, what do Very you got? Cool. Uh Crime Lines uh is a podcast um that I listen to and uh so I wanted to give it a shout out. Uh here's the description. Crime Lines walks you through true crime events pairing captivating tales with clear storytelling. Host Charlie brings in appropriate historical and cultural context to look beyond what happened and consider why it happened. Charlie Worrell used to be a host on Insight, which was one of my first favorite true crime podcasts. Oh. And it's now defunct and rebranded as Crime Lines without Charlie's co-host uh, on Insight. Uh, so it's just Charlie now. Ooh. Anyway, every third Thursday, Crime Lines spotlights a case involving missing and murdered indigenous women. So... <gasps> Check it out. Ooh, okay, color me subscribed. Uh, well, that's that's uh, that's our show, Beth. Where can the people find yeah. us in the meantime? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Podcast app, or you can be become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave four-year vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.